Miles, what's on your mind? Mystique. No, I'm Rachel, although I could see where you'd be suspicious, what with the shape-shifting and all. It really is the retcon that keeps on giving. But no, I was thinking about where she falls on the hero-to-villain spectrum. All over the place, Lady switched sides more than Sunfire. Well, she started out as a villain, at least, right? Well, if you're talking order of appearance, yeah, but if you're talking continuity, she teamed up with Destiny Wolverine and time-traveling Shadowcat and Rachel Summers to fight Nazis in the 40s. Huh. Okay, well, but then she was a Ms. Marvel villain. Yeah, and then she made her way into the X-Men from there. Right, with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And then there was Freedom Force, which was antagonistic, but also government-sponsored, kind of a precursor to X-Factor. Which she also later joined after saving the X-Men from the Shadow King and the universe from Mojo. Yeah, and after that, I think she killed Moira McTaggart and modified the legacy virus to kill humans. Oh man, and then there was that weird arc where she infiltrated the X-Men specifically to cockblock Gambit. Which is an honorable goal, in her defense. Can we just not talk about that, like, ever? Anyway, didn't she actually join the X-Men right after that? Yeah, but she betrayed them pretty much immediately, and then she shot Rogue, and then she went to absurd lengths to save her, after which Rogue absorbed her wholesale. So she's dead? No, she got better, posed first as Xavier, then as young Jean Grey, robbed a bunch of banks and government installations, bought Matterport with cash, and kidnapped Dazzler to use her blood to make mutant power-boosting drugs. What?! Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 17th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. We want to first give a big welcome to anybody listening to us through Comics Alliance. Yeah, we're super, super psyched to be on Comics Alliance. I'm also going to be writing a bunch of monthly and periodic content. Some of it's going to be X-Men, some of it's going to be other stuff. So yeah, welcome Comics Alliance listeners. To the rest of you, because we've got a bunch of new folks coming in this time, we might give a little more background than usual. We hope that you will bear with us. Yeah, I guess first we should talk about how Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men works. Well, it's kind of what it says on the tin. I mean, I'm Rachel. And I'm Miles. And we explain the X-Men. Basically, we go through X-Men history roughly chronologically. So in our first episode, we started with X-Men number one from 1963, and we analyze each arc in turn. We skip around some if there's been a major retcon or if there's something thematically appropriate or if we've got a guest who's got more recent relevant work. And that's going to be shifting as we get into more titles. Right now, we are basically in the middle of the Claremont run. We've just recently wrapped up the Dark Phoenix saga. Last episode, we took a break. And in honor of San Diego Comic-Con's total lack of an X-Men panel, boo, we did a look at the current state of X-Books. If you want some major spoilers, you can go back and listen to that. And now we are about to dive into the next Claremont arc, which I believe starts with X-Men 154. Yeah, now I should note, X-Men and 153, that would be what came next chronologically. That's Kitty's Fairy Tale, which is a universally beloved single-issue story. We're going to be getting to that one later when we talk about Kitty Pride some more. What we're planning to do right now is basically fold that into a spotlight on Kitty Pride episode, which is going to be happening very soon, since she's becoming a really major character in the X-Universe. For now, though, let's go to space. Previously on X-Men. So the X-Men have been to space a couple of times already at this point in continuity. The first time was to deal with the Emkron Crystal, which is the sort of nexus of all reality. Then for the Dark Phoenix Saga, where where Jean Grey was called by the Shi'ar, a bunch of space bird jerks, to answer for her crimes. Shortly after Jean Grey's death on the moon, Cyclops quit the team. He just recently came back. In the interim, Storm led the team. She's still in charge right now. Now, the X-Men are currently based out of a sort of island base, very Atlantean-looking, that they commandeered from Magneto in the Bermuda Triangle. Long story, don't worry too much about it. So, uh, who's on the team currently, Rachel? Well, we've got Cyclops, who's, again, back after a brief hiatus. Storm, 
who's in charge, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Sprite. That's Kitty Pride's current code name. She's going to become Shadowcat a bit later. We're probably going to slip and call her that anyway because it's the code name she used for the longest. And the folks who are coming back in this, we mentioned space stuff, are some guys who we first met in episode seven, and those are the Star Jammers. As far as X Men go, most people know about X Men as really representing this metaphor of mutants as, you know, various different persecuted minorities. Or for the soap opera, romance, love triangles, really weird family trees, a lot of interpersonal drama. But one of our favorite things about X-Men is their crazy space adventures. Periodically, they go into space. They deal with this sort of uh, avian Roman empire called the Shi'ar Empire. They're assholes. They deal with these space pirates called the Starjammers, who are amazing. And they are led by Corsair, who is the father of Cyclops and Havoc. They don't know this yet in the comic, or Cyclops and Havoc don't. Corsair knows, Storm knows, and Jean Grey knows, but Corsair has asked them not to tell Cyclops for nebulous and kind of dickish reasons. Anyway, at the beginning of most X-Men arcs, we have sort of a checking in with the status quo. Now, sometimes this is the X-Men training in the danger room and having some exposition in their dialogue while they do. In this case, it's the X-Men cleaning up the island base. And then we also have Storm and Cyclops back at the X-Mansion. That's the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning, but at this time, I think it's Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. And they're playing handball, and they're talking about their respective powers and the potential leadership of the X-Men. This is a theme that we're going to come back to a lot in this arc, because again, Cyclops had been leading the X-Men for over a decade at this point, and left and Storm took over, and she's still sort of in charge, and they're still feeling out what their new dynamic is going to be. And this is, I want to go into this a little bit, because Storm and Cyclops get played up a lot in X-Books as rivals for leadership. They get teased as potentially romantic in a couple places, and something that rarely gets the focus, but is one of my very favorite undercurrents of the intersection between those characters, is that they have one of the coolest friendships in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, there's a lot of respect there. They, they handle things very differently, and I think they see some of themselves in each other, but also a, hey, maybe I could do things differently. Maybe this is also a valid way of being a leader, being a mutant, being an X-Man, being a person. And there's another person who is with them in the X-Mansion, is a character named Carol Danvers. If you read Captain Marvel, you know who Carol Danvers is, and you know why she's awesome. At this point, Carol Danvers is recovering from having her powers permanently stolen by Rogue. That happened in an issue we're going to be talking about later in this very same episode. That was, I believe, in Avengers Annual, right? Uh, Number 10, yes. But she's been recuperating, and she's hanging out. She's sort of left the Avengers temporarily, so she's hanging out with the X-Men, and she's not officially one of the X-Men, but for all practical purposes, she's on the team for now. The third thing we're cutting to is the aforementioned space pirates, the Starjammers. Their leader, Corsair, he is frantically trying to get to Earth in a tiny spaceship and ends up actually crashing into the X-Mansion or into a lake near the X-Mansion right near where Cyclops and Storm are. We've seen Corsair and the Starjammers show up in the early hundreds. Corsair is a space pirate. And at that point, it was revealed to a couple characters that he was Cyclops' dad, but he asked them not to tell. Cyclops still doesn't know this, but this time, because Corsair is unconscious when he crashes, he discovers that Corsair has dog tags with his dad's name on them and a locket that has pictures of Scott and his little brother as kids in it, and he freaks the fuck out. So he confronts Corsair about that. I I almost wondered if if Corsair made this happen. He's like, oh, this is an awkward situation. Oh, look, we're being attacked by alien bounty hunters. And so they're attacked by alien bounty hunters. This is basically how every serious conversation in the Summers family goes. Like, when they try to give the birds and the bees talk, oh, nope, aliens, consent and drinking and driving, ooh, time slip. (laughs) So this time, these are these aliens called the Sidrian Hunters, which are sort of these big manta ray bug things. That can merge into a big manta ray bug thing. They're not actually that important. They are a precursor to the really important aliens. There's a brief fight. They blow up a petroleum storage facility and continue to have family drama. And in the process, they perform a memorable first of many in X-Men, which is the complete 
complete and utter destruction of the X-Mansion. It's plywood and scrap metal at this point. Yeah, it's been heavily damaged before, but this time it's just gone. When I was reading this issue again, I was realizing it was was more familiar than I thought it would be. Obviously, we've we've read all these issues before, and I realized it was because there's an episode of X-Men, the animated series, the one from the 90s, that basically is this story and is unfortunately one of the worst episodes of the whole freaking series. Their budget was really suffering toward the end, so like in this episode, we see Storm, her hair is tied back the whole time in a ponytail, so they didn't have to animate it. It is embarrassingly bad. Cyclops did have some previous hint that he was related to Corsair, and I'm going to talk about this because I will talk about this scene at any opportunity because I think it's one of the funniest things ever. In X-Men 114, the X-Men go to the Savage Land, which is this sort of the land outside of time with a lot of dinosaurs in Antarctica. Cyclops doesn't shave for a few days. When he finally does he shaves his beard first and he's looking in the mirror and he recognizes that with a mustache he looks kind of like Corsair like he doesn't recognize the face but he recognizes the mustache I look almost piratical yeah he actually says that it is a delightfully stupid moment but going on so they they fight the Sidorian hunters at this point the X-Men all get teleported into space because that's pretty much how the Shi'ar say hi. Right. Now, this is, to clarify, this is Cyclops and Storm. Who and, are in uh, Westchester. Right. And uh, Corsair, I believe. And then it's the other X-Men from Magneto's island base in the Bermuda Triangle. They're all sort of just teleported up to a Shi'ar dreadnought. And here we see a couple of Shi'ar, uh, one we've seen before, which is Arakai, who's the chancellor of the Shi'ar Empire. We also see this new guy, Samadar, who's sort of a military commander in the Shi'ar Empire and is a total dick. For those those of you who haven't checked in, again, we talk about the Shi'ar as well as the Star Jammers at some length in episode seven. The Shi'ar are led by a woman named Lalandra, who's their empress, and she is basically Professor X's really serious girlfriend at this point. They're, they're doing the long distance thing because he's running the X-Men on Earth and she's running a space empire in, you know, space, but they are romantically linked. They are also directly responsible for the death of Jean Cray of Phoenix on the moon. So um, how this relationship has persisted in the face of that is is a question that they just continue to fail to address. But they can ignore it at this point because Lalandra is not there. What we learn from Arakai and the commander is that Lalandra has been kidnapped and they don't know exactly what happened, but they do know that they traced her signal to Earth. And they're going to straight up blow up Earth, which is weird because if she was kidnapped, wouldn't they want to get her back? Well, they do, Clara that they want to either rescue her or, if that's impossible, if she's already been killed, to avenge her death, which effectively will be, yes, blowing up the Earth. And Professor Xavier, using his great negotiation skills that lead to things like duels on the moon, convinces them to give him and the X-Men one day to try to find Lalandra, which again just seems like a ridiculously brief period if your Empress is missing. The Shi'ar agree, but they say the X-Men have to leave them with two hostages as collateral. Um, Those end up being Kitty and Nightcrawler, and before they leave, Professor X transfers all of his knowledge of Shi'ar engineering, of the state of the Empire, of the language, and how to hack their computers to Kitty, who, as we know, is already kind of a computer whiz. The Shi'ar say, all right, you've got your 24 hours, and the X-Men head back to Earth without really an idea of how to proceed so they figure well this is a gigantic threat to the entire planet let's talk to the avengers they're their earth's mightiest heroes it's right there on their business cards they're all out you know on various missions avenging uh, avenging like you do um except for a new member who is tigra who's sort of this wear cat lady i don't actually know that much about tigra but my my distinct impression with this is so can i use the avengers well i don't know what about beast he's an avenger you know he's busy captain america nah he's out and just working way down the roster. Well, who, who can I have? Eh, Tigra. 
Tiger's actually pretty cool. She is. She's a cool character, but very, very, very third string at this point. Yeah, so they're all trying to figure out what to do. What Corsair and Storm decide to do is take a walk through the middle of New York with Storm looking super mod and just Corsair in all of his space pirate gear. Yeah, so they're taking this walk and all these uh, bystanders, to the credit of the artist, are just looking at him like, what the hell? Why is this dude dressed like a 70s space pirate? It's the 80s. Why isn't he an 80s space pirate? I assume they're thinking. Okay, so they're they're wandering through and they are attacked by a size screen weapon, which leads into some really great narration. This is, again, we've we've talked before about how kind of deliciously purple Claremont gets with the narration, and that never happens more or better than when he's writing about the Starjammers, because if there's a place that calls for over-the-top purple pulpy narration... It's space pirate adventures. Storm and Corsair, they're, they're hit by this this weapon, and that makes them kind of start hallucinating all these scary nightmare things. They start fighting each other. So Claremont tells us, Meanwhile, oblivious to the conflict raging about them, Storm and Corsair are engaged in a private war of their own, waged with all the ruthless ferocity the human heart and soul are capable of. Left unchecked, their fight would not end until one or both of them lay dead. The X-Men, however, don't intend to let things come to that. I love this. It's just, they're just punching each other, dude. Heart and soul are capable of... So what this reminds me of, it's like, it's like a Bollywood movie where everything is just turned up to 11. You know, you're having a bad day, and so like thousands of dancers pouring over every nearby dorm start flipping around. Wait, wait, what if there was actually a Bollywood musical about the Starjammers? Claremont writes, Starjammers Bollywood musical. Oh, man, I feel Could like, you do this? Would that be crossing the streams? I feel like if, if, if you're watching this in, in your living room, I mean, the mutant and, and alien dancers will actually just literally come out of your screen and start shooting you with a psychic scream rays. So the focused totality of Claremont and Bollywood, it's enough to break through the fourth wall? Very, very likely. Oh, All man. right. So who's attacking them? Uh, They're being attacked by one person that we as Marvel readers have seen before, and then a bunch of people, creatures that we haven't. We have seen the leader, which is Deathbird. She's sort of a bird lady with uh, these uh, talon-tipped wings. She is Lalandra's sister, and she is trying to take over the Empire. The aliens that she's with, they look like xenomorphs from the alien movies. They also look like these demons who live in Professor X's backyard. Long story. Uh, And they are called the Brood, and this is their first appearance. They're going to become a really big deal. And they are, just to clarify, unrelated to either xenomorphs or the demons in Professor X's yard. So so there's a big fight, ends up with Colossus getting impaled by Deathbird and Deathbird escaping, having kidnapped Xavier in addition to already having Empress Lalandra. At this point, Kitty and Nightcrawler are hostages of the Shi'ar. Colossus is dying. He's not quite dead. Professor X has been kidnapped by Deathbird. The rest of the X-Men don't know what to do. The cops show up to arrest them, and at that point, the Starjammers swoop in to rescue them. The Starjammers are Corsair's crew. They are, again, fucking rad. They're beamed aboard, and Corsair, who the last he saw them, they were fighting to cover his escape, talks to the big reptilian one. Code, but you were surrounded, trapped by Imperial Marines. How did you escape? Miraculously, of course. Because this is how you talk if you're a space yeah, pirate. Yeah, I love, man, the, the, the Starjammers Argo where they're in a comic book to a slightly greater extent than most of their peers. They all get together. In the meantime, you know, Nightcrawler and Kitty see that Colossus has maybe died, and they're kind of concerned about this, understandably. But the other X-Men, they're like, well, we have to rescue Lalandra to save the world, to save Earth, and also rescue Professor Xavier, because he's our bro. Spoiler, they do both of these things. They do them fairly efficiently. I want to break in here really quickly. Like, this is a fun story, but what it mostly is doing is setting up something that's going to come later, which is the Brood Saga. Yeah, and 
for anybody who's new to the show, something we've talked a lot about is the Chris Claremont long game. He was, and uh, is to a degree as well, very, very good at introducing little plot elements that won't really come to fruition for sometimes years at a time. Like, it's the foreshadowing is always there for Claremont stuff. For more on this, and again, we're doing a little more of the as-mentioned-in thing, just because we know we've got a lot of new folks coming in. Um, for more on Claremont in particular and his storytelling, uh, you can go back to episode 8, what we talk about when we talk about Claremont. So anyway, the way this goes, they follow the Deathbird to the Brood's base, which are these these big space whales called the Akanti that they cut the brain out of and use them as the spaceship. It's super morbid and macabre. They do end up saving Lalandra. And in the meantime, back in the Dreadnought, Kitty is realizing, like, holy crap, they don't really mean to uphold the run of the bargain. This Samadar guy, this warlord who just killed the Chancellor, Arakai, he just wants to destroy the Earth. And so they go with their plan, which is for Kitty to use this costuming machine. Oh, we should talk about the costuming machine. Okay, so one of the few things established about Kitty Pride at this point in the comic is that she loves to dress up. She tried to make herself an X-Men costume, which went somewhat catastrophically. There were roller skates involved. There was a lot of glitter. And in this, she she's ostensibly playing around with this costume machine. She's using it to find out more about the Shi'ar ship, and she's using it sort of as a smokescreen. But she's also just dressing up in a series of increasingly marvelously weird outfits. Um, yeah, at one point she makes herself straight up Darth Vader. There's there's great narration to go with it. And we should just do a roundup of all of the really amazing Kitty Pride outfits, because there are going to be more later, too. That would be great, yeah. But yeah, so she uses this device to disguise herself as Dark Phoenix, who the Shi'ar are terrified of, understandably, in order to startle them for long enough to to kidnap their telepath, Oracle, just so that she can convince, you know, a lot of the Shi'ar who are not the villainous Samadar who uh, plans to destroy the Earth, whether they rescue Lalandra or not, of what's really going on. Uh, meanwhile, there's a pretty terrific high-stakes battle. Storm gets sucked out of an airlock. Pirates pirate around. Again, the real story stuff is the brood saga that it sets up and the Summers family drama of Cyclops and Corsair gradually reconnecting. So the story resolves, uh, but the last thing that happens, Xavier had tried to communicate with Kitty and Nightcrawler telepathically and basically went comatose suddenly. And what we see as he does this is this weird vision he's having of this crazy, like, alien monstery something or other. We don't know why, but yeah, that's where we leave off with Xavier Comatose. Now, the next issue of Uncanny X-Men is where Rogue first shows up. Uh, it's sort of a new arc. But before we go into that, we'll take a step we really haven't before, which is to talk about a completely non-X-Men book, because it's going to become extremely relevant. That is Avengers Annual number 10. It introduces Rogue. Rogue is a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She is Mystique's adopted daughter, and she has the power to absorb the powers of other mutants through skin-to-skin contact, along with bits of their memories and personalities. She does this at this point mostly via kissing, which is a whole other uncomfortable conversation. In this issue, um, we, we see the villains of the piece are the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, the incarnation run by Mystique. And we last saw them in Days of Future Past. They were trying to assassinate Senator Kelly, and uh, the X-Men had to stop them. They're all in prison after that. Avengers Annual Number 10 involves Rogue going to break them out. First, though, Spider-Woman, who's been running around with the X-Men on and off, rescues Carol Danvers, who's been pushed off a bridge by Mystique. So who's, who's Carol Danvers, quickly, okay. before we go in? Carol Danvers is the superhero Ms. Marvel. Ms. Marvel is a character who was empowered by Marvel, who's a Kree warrior. She is fantastic. I want to actually take a brief aside on this because she is currently a character named Captain Marvel. 
She's headlining in a solo book by Kelly Sue DeConnick. It is one of the best books that Marvel is currently putting out. It's a really, really great solo series. Um, one that we highly recommend. We don't do a ton of Outside the X Universe Marvel reading. We read a lot of Asgard stuff, but this is a title we've definitely been following avidly. Um, but at this point, yeah, Ms. Marvel had been out of continuity for a while for reasons we're going to to get to. Oh my god. But yeah, if you're familiar with Rogue from like the 90s X-Men cartoon, she's super strong, she can fly. She got that from Ms. Marvel. She stole that from Ms. Marvel when she was a supervillain. Yeah, that's Ms. Marvel's power set. So the Avengers fight Rogue and they fight the Brotherhood and there's some really cool scenes of like Destiny using her uh, powers of precognition to affect the fight. And then Carol Danvers leaves the Avengers and the reason she leaves the Avengers is not exactly X-Men pertinent, but what it specifically is is Chris Claremont going back and cleaning up one of the most god-awful messes of the Bronze Age and doing it in a way that I think is very, very much in line philosophically with his work on X-Men and that is the Marcus story. Or something that nobody ever wants to talk about because, oh my god, it's uncomfortable. Leading up to Avengers number 200, we see Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, who was on the team at the time, suddenly get pregnant and, you know, like over the course of days, come to term and have a baby. Similarly, once she has this baby of unknown origin, the baby grows up very quickly as well. It becomes really clear in this that this is not a consensual pregnancy. This isn't a pregnancy she wanted. She has no fucking clue where it came from. Not in a, I don't know who the dad is, but in a, I don't know how I got pregnant, period, way. And that's very explicit in the comic. Like Wasp keeps congratulating her and she just keeps on being like, yeah, no, this isn't this isn't a good thing. This is not a delightful event. Come on, for fuck's sake, Jan. But in the Avengers issues, Ms. Marvel does come around because she wants to be a good mother. And uh, once the baby grows up uh, in a matter of a few days, he reveals himself to be this dude named Marcus, who is the son of an Avengers villain called Immortus from the Dimension of Limbo, which is not the same Limbo that's involved with X-Men. It's an entirely different Limbo with the same name. He teleported her to Limbo, wooed her with history's greatest musicians and playwrights, and it seems like just wooed her, but also um, with a subtle boost from Immortus's machines, read somewhat mind control, and used that to impregnate her with himself. Right, because he really wanted to get out of limbo, so he kidnapped somebody who would be strong enough for him to bring there and then send back. And then to carry the weird accelerated Prince of Limbo to term. So, yeah, uh, he explains this story to everybody, and everyone's kind of okay with it. They're like, oh, well, I guess that makes sense, but, you know, your presence here is destabilizing time and space, so you gotta go back. And he says, alright, I'll go back. This is where it gets weird. Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, says, well, I still have feelings for when I was in limbo with you, even though I don't have memories of it, so I'm gonna go with you because I love you. And the Avengers are like, yay, that's great. It's the power of true love. Then once she's there, the time anomalies make him age quickly and die, and she's finally free of the mind control that convinced her to go with it, and uses some kind of technology to get back. This is so fucked up. Let's talk for a minute about exactly what happened, like in really short summary. This dude mind controlled her, impregnated her with himself, forced her to carry this pregnancy to admittedly brief term, aged quickly, and then basically again coerced her into coming back with him. While her friends all cheered this whole sequence of events along. And there was a lot of uh, response to this of people being super not okay with it. There's a, a sort of important essay from this time by a woman named Carol Strickland called The Rape of Ms. Marvel. Can we link to that? Is that online? Uh, yeah, we totally can. Okay, yeah, we'll link to that in the, the As Mentioned post, which again is going to be up on Sunday at rachelandmiles.com. At the end of this fight, after the Avengers have defeated Rogue, Carol, who's now awake and Xavier's healed her mind a little bit, calls them all to task. This is Claremont effectively going off at Marvel editorial. Absolutely. This is him attempting to redeem the excellent character of Ms. Marvel after she was 
just put through some really not okay stuff. And not only put through not okay stuff, but put through not okay stuff that was handled horrifically badly in the comic. There are two things that are creepy as hell about this story. One of them is the events that actually happen, the shit that goes down and the stuff that Marcus does to her. The other is the way that all of her peers who are written as the good guys in this responds or fails to respond to it. And this is Claremont calling them directly out. Yes, I want to read a little bit of what Carol says to the Avengers. There I was, pregnant by an unknown source, running through a nine-month term literally overnight, confused, terrified, shaken to the core of my being as a hero, a person, a woman. I turned to you for help, and I got jokes. The wasp thought it was great, and the beast offered to play teddy bear. Your concerns were for the baby, not for how it came to be, nor of the cost to me of that conception. You took everything Marcus said at face value. You didn't question, you didn't doubt. You simply let me go with a smile and a wave and a bouncy bon voyage. That's a really strong statement, even by today's standards. I love that Claremont not only made the statement, but had, you know, Miss Marvel actually call her teammates out on it in canon, in a comic. This is not something you see happen a lot in comics, and especially in superhero comics. And actually, Rachel, I mean, you write a lot about this very topic, about gender and representation and a handling of things like rape in comics. What's, what's yeah, I'm actually this? specifically <laughs> the best qualification ever. I'm quoted at the top of the gratuitous rape page of TV Tropes how much I cover this. Um, Huzzah! I think the Ms. Marvel story it's referencing is pretty ghastly. I think in terms of incontinuity addressing of that trope, it's one of the better examples. And it's one of the better examples for a lot of reasons. But the primary one for me is that Carol is the one who calls it out. And something you see happen a whole lot in terms of, of sexual violence in comics. It's used as a catalyst for discussion or anger of the people around them, not the individual in question. I mean, that's true socially, too. But it's uniquely frustrating to see it played out in fiction because that's a universe that someone creates deliberately and controls. And the fact that Claremont decided to address it in a way that specifically gave Carol the primary voice and agency is, I think, significant. Also, it's just really satisfying seeing her give that speech because this was either before or right after I was born. So obviously, I wasn't reading comics at this point, but I am imagining that what she said reflected what a lot of readers at that point were thinking. And having that come out of the mouth of a major superhero and having the Avengers, the big deal team, acknowledge it is a really big deal. I mean, I don't know if this significantly changed people's minds or the way that they looked at social response to sexual violence, but I'm guessing that some really good conversations came out of it. I think the way we address this stuff in fiction matters and makes a really big difference. And that's part of what I like about Claremont on X-Men and on books. There are points that are hit and miss. There's definitely some really dubious consent, and some of it is more examined than others. But I think this is a really sterling moment in terms of authorial responsibility. Absolutely, yeah. So what we have here is an issue that's the first appearance of Rogue, but it's also hugely significant in the context of comics at the time, and I would say the comics industry in general. And I want to go back to a final quote, and we're talking about, you know, Carol's speech to the Avengers as, as Claremont's to the comics industry, which is, um, you screwed up, Avengers. That's human. What is also human is the ability to learn from those mistakes, to grow, to mature. Love it. Uh, so wish it had stuck. So now it, it feels really anticlimactic just going to the issue that happens next with the X-Men fighting Rogue, but that is our chosen duty, and so we are going to you do it. So let's explain Rogue a little bit. In that same annual, Rogue absorbed Carol's memories. Uh, she absorbed a lot of her personality and she absorbed most of her superpowers. Right now, Carol is hanging out with the X-Men trying to figure out what's going on, trying to piece some of her memories and history back together and trying to figure out what of her powers she currently has. So X-Men 158, she is in the danger room. The X-Men are currently on at that island base that used to be Magneto's and with them monitoring is... 
the, <laughs> the ubiquitous Dr. Peter Corbo. Now, people who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that we have an unhealthy fixation with Peter Corbo. Who's okay, just... to be fair, our unhealthy fixation with Dr. Peter Corbo is a direct product of Chris Claremont's unhealthy fixation with Dr. Peter Corbo. So yeah, he's just this scientist dude that keeps showing up again and again and again. He's basically, if you play tabletop role-playing games, you know how there's always that NPC who you know your DM rolled up to play in another game and just never got to do, so he stuck them in as an NPC and they're always the coolest and they're always the best and they always show up with relevant bits of information and then just don't fucking leave? That's Peter Corbeau. He is a scientist. He is an astronaut. He is an adventurer. He works with like seven organizations. He hangs out with the X-Men. Once he swam most of the way across the Atlantic Ocean, we think... So he's he's got a ship called the Deja Thoris too. He's he's ludicrous and and we kid Peter Corbo. You know we love you. So anyway, he's there. Uh, we also have Doctor Moira McTaggart. We have Lalandra. We have Oracle of the Imperial Guard. Who's... And again, Moira McTaggart is Xavier's ex, who is a leading scientist and mutant geneticist who runs around on and off with the X Men and is currently romantically linked to Banshee, who is not there because he's back in Scotland holding down the fort at her base. That's something I think is important to recognize: is X Men as a book has an awesome supporting cast at this point, except for Peter Corbo. He's only okay. Anyway, the point being, there are a lot of great characters who show up when relevant, and it's, it doesn't just feel like the X-Men running around in isolation. Although, to be fair, my favorite recent awesome character is currently still MIA, who's Lee Forrester. She's in the girlfriend cave with Amanda Sefton. <laughs> so, the reason Oracle is here, normally the Imperial Guard of the Shi'ar Empire doesn't show up on Earth to do very much. Uh, she's trying to psychically heal Xavier, who, uh, like we said, he went comatose the last time he tried to use his powers. And she sees, when she tries to read his mind... That there's something else in there. Bum, bum, bum. And Xavier unconsciously actually tries to use his psychic link with Oracle to get her to use her powers to kill him. He's trying to commit suicide by telepath. Because he's that concerned about whatever it is that's infected his mind. As you might imagine, this is going to become a big deal coming up right here. Meanwhile, on the television, Senator Kelly, whom you may recall from Days of Future Past, or if you're primarily familiar with the X-Men movies from the first two only in this universe, he doesn't become a mutant and then die. He's just kind of a dick who pushes anti-mutant policies, is on the television talking about how uh, mutants are dangerous. And the X-Men are watching this and they realize, wait a minute... Kelly works for the government. We used to work with the government back in the Silver Age. They had an FBI contact that Xavier worked with. Fred Duncan, I believe. That's right. So we should probably head to the Pentagon and erase the records the government has about us, since this anti-mutant hysteria thing is really kicking into high gear. And this is one of those great minor details where current readers that actually kind of beautifully dates the comic, because if this were a current thing, they would sit down there and they would they would hack into the files from the mansion. There's no internet yet. There's really no DARPAnet at this point. They're going to have to actually go over there and erase everything manually. Yeah, so we have Carol Danvers, Wolverine, and Storm heading over there. And uh, Carol and Wolverine are in their sort of prior lives military garb. Storm is not. She's just there with them. Meanwhile, in the ongoing tradition of destroying any attempts that Havoc and Polaris make to have normal lives, Corsair and Cyclops decide to go and introduce them, considering that Corsair is also Alex's father, and Alex doesn't know he's alive either. I, I love this. We've, we've talked about this before. So Polaris and Havoc at this point are trying really hard to just be people, to not be superheroes. They're graduate students. And at this point, they're cooking dinner. Havoc is wearing this, this ridiculous chef's hat, and someone really needs to sit down and have a really serious conversation with Alex Summers about his headwear choices. Yeah, his main costumes uh, helmet is just this bizarre, bizarre thing. Yeah, like his secondary mutation is horrible taste in hats. Meanwhile, at the Pentagon, Mystique and Rogue just show up. 
Yeah, so Mystique's actually been working in U.S. government in one of her disguises. She's a shapeshifter, so this is easy for her. And that is the Raven Darkholm identity. That's actually her real name, and it's the main cover identity that she uses. Yeah, and so she's there, Rogue's there. Not a lot to talk about here. They all fight. The X-Men end up winning, and Carol Danvers is able to erase not only the records of the X-Men from the government files, but also the records of herself, which makes her feel like she's going to have a chance at starting over. Yeah, she decides she's not really the same person that she was when she was Ms. Marvel at that point. She's not really the same person that she she was when she was working with the government and she just she wants those people to just go away rogue is going to disappear again for a while the next time we're going to see her i believe is when she comes back and actually finally joins the x-men yeah that'll be a little while later but in the meantime i think we have time for a couple of questions here so super curry max on tumblr asks question about rogue's powers when she touches someone and gains an ability she didn't have before say for instance kung fu when that wears off will she continue to have the kung fu knowledge or would that go away too I understand if absorbing another mutant's power would go away, but if she learns Kung Fu or how to build cars or something after touching someone and uses that knowledge shortly after, should she not be able to keep it? So that would make sense. Um, The way this is written, though, in the comic is pretty inconsistent. The powers will fade after a certain period of time. The memories generally do, too. Now, we've seen this happen uh, where she'll get, like, you know, a lot of detail right after she touches someone and absorbs their mind. It usually will fade in time. Now, depending on the writer, occasionally we'll see sort of bits and pieces of that come back. If the contact has been prolonged, like it was with Ms. Marvel, they stick around pretty much indefinitely. Later on, we see variations of this, like in Extreme X-Men, Sage uh, supercharges Rogue's powers such that Rogue can help uh, bring back uh, any power she's absorbed in the past at will. I don't think that counts with memory, though. So while we do have a lot of mechanics very very well-defined for the powers Rogue absorbs. For memories, it's basically whatever is convenient for the plot at the time. There's actually another character for whom this comes up who specifically only absorbs and mirrors knowledge and skills, and that's Prodigy. And that's been that's been addressed again a couple of ways as well, but was specifically addressed at fair length after he was depowered, I think, in M-Day. So we have another question. This is from Jeff Peterson, and he asks... Several of the defining Bronze Age stories have a major moment that involves the death of a prominent female character, Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man, Supergirl in Crisis on Infinite Earths. These events often typified the women in refrigerators trope. Do you think that the death of Jean slash Phoenix in X-Men number 137 is another of these moments, or is there something intrinsically different? So, brief bit of background for those of you unfamiliar with it, the women in refrigerators trope refers to the killing, depowering, or otherwise harming or sidelining of a female character as a narrative catalyst for a male protagonist. I think the Dark Phoenix saga is different, and the reason I think it's different is that Jean is the main character. It is fundamentally her story in a way that the others you're describing aren't. Gwen Stacy is a supporting character in Spider-Man with Supergirl. The iconic cover I'm thinking of is a Superman cover. And while Jean's death does change the status quo in X-Men, A, it changes the status quo for a lot of characters. Honestly, if there's a character we see focusing most on it, it's probably Storm. And while, again, it does change things for her partner... The things that change in the aftermath of the Dark Phoenix saga are things that change in the aftermath of a major death or a major crisis or a major upheaval. The story itself, I don't think the Dark Phoenix saga is when refrigerated story. I think there is a longer conversation to be had about the gender politics of it. That's something that we've talked about a little bit when we covered it, but um, there's definitely room for discussion at more length. But yeah, the short version is that no, I don't think she's fridged. Okay, I think we are out of time for today. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at welcometothatwholething.com. Check out our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for each episode. Those go up on Sundays, so if you're listening at Comics Alliance, check back then. 
art and written posts, video reviews of current X titles, and all sorts of other stuff. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to check out and maybe sponsor our Patreon. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com and rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. New episodes air at comicsalliance.com every Thursday at rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher on Sundays. Next week, Dracula. Yep, that Dracula. Dracula.